and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now... Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another great, meaningful, deep, deep conversation with our guest. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit about myself. So I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach. And I founded a company called Strong Skills. At Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. See, we believe labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, communication. We even talk about bias and belonging, which we get into in today's conversation. When you label competencies and skills like that as soft, it actually devalues and minimizes the importance of those skills. And one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out in October of 2020. If you enjoyed today's episode or any of our previous conversations, I know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase. And we truly appreciate your support with the book. Heck, if you like listening to audiobooks, you can even purchase it via Audible. Thanks to all of you for your continued support with Shift Your Mind. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, it would mean the world to us if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really does help us expand the reach of the podcast, or you can send a message to a friend and just say, hey, I think you'll enjoy this conversation. You can send an email, you could share it on social. We want to continue to build this thing out and share these intentional performers with the world. I deeply and greatly appreciate the support. So let's head to our guest today. Celeste Headley is somebody who I first found because of her TED Talk. Her TED Talk, Sharing 10 Ways to Have a Better Conversation, has over 26 million views. You heard that right. It is my go-to resource when I'm talking about communication, when at Strong Skills we're doing trainings on communication, we'll often reference her TED Talk 
as a resource. She's also an award-winning journalist, professional speaker, and author of We Need to Talk, How to Have Conversations That Matter, Do Nothing, which was about how to break away from overworking, overdoing, and underliving. Additionally, her latest book is the subject of our conversation today, which is speaking of race. Additionally, Celeste's career has been largely as an interviewer. She was a host on NPR and American public media and a highly sought out consultant advising companies around the world on conversations about race, diversity, and inclusion. She's even going to talk about her nonprofit, which is called Headway Training, which really helps organizations and companies around that DEI space. So we're going to get into it in this conversation. We're going to learn more about Celeste and how she sees the world and how the intersection of all of her work has led her to where she is today. She's also a Washingtonian. So like me, she lives in the DC area. And so we share a lot in common. We're also very different. And I think you'll appreciate our dialogue and our conversation today. We dance a little bit. We jump around. But there's no question, Celeste is absolutely an intentional performer and an intentional person. So I'm so excited to share her with you. Here we go. Celeste, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You are not far away from me, but in the day and age we live in, we still get to record virtually, which actually works out great for me. It's become a preference uh, for my work and certainly for the podcast. But where I thought we would start is on this idea of location. And when we talk about location, we're not, not talking about Washington, D.C. or Bethesda, Maryland. We're talking about locating yourself and where you are before you're going to have a conversation. So I mentioned before we started recording that I love to use this chart, which is called the States of Mind chart, which was developed by a mentor of mine and a colleague, a guy named Alexander Calais. And Alex talks about finding yourself, locating yourself before you're actually going to have dialogue with people. So I'm going to walk our audience through it because they can't see it. And then I'd love for you to locate, hey, where are you right now? It's a Friday at 1.30 in January. It's about to start snowing here. Where are you <laughs> before we have this conversation? So for the listeners, a plus three is inspired, ecstatic, elated, passionate. A plus two is happy, excited, energized, eager. A plus one is calm, content, even keeled, satisfied, a minus one is fatigued, stressed, annoyed, distracted. A minus two is angry, disappointed, frustrated, disengaged. And then a minus three is depressed, miserable, desperate, and victimized. And that wraps the longest introduction I have ever had to a guest. So you take it from here, Celeste. Where are you? So I think I'm I'm probably at zero. Like I'm fatigued and I'm also a little bit even keeled. It's Friday. It's been a very busy week. So I'm a little tired. Um but I'm also pretty placid. I mean, I think my lake is without ripples at this point. Um, and when you're in that sort of middle ground, what do you notice about yourself? I mean, for me, I know that it takes me a little more effort to bring my focus to bear at this point. You know, it's kind of like you're, you're balancing on a balance board. And um, when I'm at this state, it can go either way all too easily. Like I could very easily sit down and sort of languish in my fatigue <laughs> that would be one way to go um uh, so if i want to you know get other things done if i if i you know if i want to have a great conversation with you i'm gonna need to to bring my focus to bear to summon up my energy i'm not trying to force anything i'm just trying to gather up the energy that's in my body and 
and focus it in. It's like you were putting your hands together like you were packing a, a snowball. So yes, exactly. Uh, maybe you're forecasting our forecast, but what do you do to to make sure to ratchet the focus up? You were using that word. What do you do to try to help yourself focus, especially if you feel like, hey, I, I need to sort of zone in or zoom in right now? Um, the first thing I almost always do is a, is a, a deep breathing exercise. Um, I, I've used all different kinds, but I, I sometimes use the, um, the 478 method that Andrew Weil, Dr. Andrew Weil suggests of breathe in through your nose for four counts, hold it for seven, and then breathe out with for eight. And I'll do that several times, like four or five times. <clears throat> if um, at that point I can focus in, usually that works. And if at that point, what I need is energy, I'll just take a quick walk, which is what I just did both of those things before I got onto the line with you as I did my breathing. And then I walked around the house um, because going outside right now, <laughs> you need equipment. <laughs> it's cold. Yeah, it's, it's cold. cold. You talked about pause practices a lot in your book, Do Nothing, and the power of pause practices. Is that something that came into your life in the last few years? I mean, this is a relatively new book. You you write you write a lot and you write quickly, but this is a relatively new book where pause practice is a part of your upbringing. Uh, when did you start leveraging breathing or going for walks? And when did that come into your life? So I um, have always been a walker. Walking is one of my favorite things to do. I think, you know, Charles Dickens was like that, right? Like he did his best thinking supposedly when he walked for miles and miles and miles and I'm exactly the same way. Um, so I've always done the the long walks to focus in, but I uh, started practicing Buddhism. I want to say maybe 2003. I was a Unitarian Universalist before that, and that's when you really start to learn about the pause, right? Um, that's when you start learning how to practice mindfulness. Um, I'm going to be completely open that I was terrible at it and have been. <clears throat> it's still um, not easy for me. Um, so. To, to sort of wrangle my wayward mind. So that makes it so much more important that I keep up with the practice because, because it does require more effort. But it's tr so transformative for me. I mean, just taking even a fraction of a second to just take that pause, especially in a conversation, even if literally it's, it's less than a, in a second, if it's just a moment, um, it can make all the difference in the world before you open up your mouth to start talking. So you can see the impacts of pause practice almost immediately. And, and that's sort of what makes it a self-rewarding uh, discipline. Are you disciplined with that discipline or is it more you'll use it as needed? No, no, I'm, I'm pretty disciplined about it. Um, I try to constantly remind myself while I'm, whatever I'm doing, frankly, um, uh, that I need to, to, to just take a pause, take a moment at any point. It really helps me. I mean, I'm a broadcast journalist. So if I'm live on the air for NPR or something, I do it all the time. Stop and think first, stop and think, stop and think. Um, and I do it in my conversations. I do it when I'm talking to my kid. I do it when I'm walking my dog before I get angry with her or something. Um, I, I'm pretty disciplined. And meditation, is that a routine and a habit? Yeah, it's a it's a routine and habit um, that at least once a day, if not more. 
And what does it look like? Is it morning? Is it afternoon? Or, or when are you doing it? Um, I usually do it in the morning um, <clears throat> to start my day. Uh, at night, I will often do, or in the afternoons, whenever I get uh, at least 15 minutes or so, I'll do a loving kindness meditation. Um, because that's usually the time of day when I'm angry at people. <laughs> <laughs> so it's time to remind myself about empathy and compassion. Um, and then sometimes I, I, you know, if I think I might have some trouble sleeping, if I'm having trouble slowing my mind down at the end of the day, then I'll do it just a, a real quick uh, breathing meditation, but um, generally once, twice a day. You said what I sometimes, you know, when I'm mad at people, and I, I think one of the things I appreciate about your work is it's genuine and you don't sugarcoat things. You speak your mind and you do it in an intentional way or in a thoughtful way. But I think one of the things we, we live in a society now that says don't judge. And as I read your work, no, I'm judging Elon Musk. I'm judging Steve Jobs. I'm judging Sheryl Sandberg, maybe with you know, talking about lean in just a little bit. Right. And so (laughs) how do you manage judgmental thinking and not let that get in the way of your own curiosity? So I, to borrow something from Christianity, I try to judge the action and not the person, right. I'm, 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 what is it? Condemn the sin and not the sinner. Um, that's what I'm trying to do is, is say, you know, this practice is is bad. It's wrongheaded. Don't take this advice. <laughs> um, but I also, I also try to tell people, look, don't believe me. <laughs> don't just believe me. Cause I'm telling you, here's all the footnotes here. You can retrace every step. You can go through all of this research for yourself if you want to, and maybe you'll come up with a different idea, but, um, you know, I don't, I don't appreciate, uh, gurus right? I don't appreciate people who are like, I'm doing this all awesome. And if you follow me and do as I've done, it'll work out well for you. And there's a couple of reasons for this is number one, come on, you're not doing it perfect. That's, that's crap. Um, and number two is like, what worked for you may not work for me. And, and I'm not going to force myself to continue doing this, this thing or this practice or this discipline that, hey, great for you if if that's working out well, but I'm more interested as a writer and as a researcher in figuring out what are the things that are helpful for the largest number of people. You know, and there's a cha- an entire chapter in Do Nothing about uh, universal human nature, which is sort of me getting down to like, is there such a thing as something that's good for all homo sapiens? Does that exist? Right. And yeah, the answer is yes. Um, But they're very basic things. They're things like belonging and play. When you start breaking it down into whether you should wake up early in the morning and immediately make your bed. No, (laughs) that's not going to be universally great for everybody. So, you know, I try. Yes, I try to be as honest as possible because I don't want people to when they stumble or when something doesn't work for them, I don't want them to give up. I want them to figure out what does work for them. When you talk about gurus and you mentioned Buddhism earlier, I think it's an interesting perspective. And you mentioned you were in sort of the Unitarian movement and where we live, there's a Unitarian church right down the street and Tara Brock, who is considered a guru when it comes to mindfulness and meditation, she's there and you can attend for free. And it's pretty remarkable to be in a church at least we used to attend stuff like that and mm-hmm. uh, and uh sit there with other people and let 
someone like Tara Brock walk you through a meditation practice. And it, yeah, and, yeah, go and I've gone, I'm just going to say, I wonder how it feels to you because that moment when you're there and this, I mean, because before pan the pandemic, those rooms would be crowded. Oh, yeah. I was on the upper level. <laughs> oh, yeah. And and at moments when she's walking you through a meditation, it goes silent. It's amazing. Like you can hear people moving their butts in the seats. Like that's how quiet it is. It is phenomenal. I mean, that's, I don't know what that's like for you, but for me, that just that silence of all these people together in a room in silence, that alone was transformative for me. But anyhow, I interrupted your question. Go ahead. No, I'd rather just have a conversation and interrupt any, anytime you want. I was going to say, we also, I, I was born and raised Jewish. And so me, I was too. And I still identify as, as being Jewish. And I was at a funeral yesterday um, and to your point about silence, there are moments of silence. And even at the Shiva, and if people aren't familiar with Shiva, Jews after the funeral, they spend nights gathering together with the community. And I got to tell you, I haven't been to one in a while. And I've had people die the last couple of years where I would have been at a Shiva or at a funeral to have a community around and have silence is so powerful. So what you're talking about resonates with me. My question was going to be on religion and how you think about it, because you brought up Unitarianism. Unitarianism. Am I saying it right? How do I Unitarian universalism. You're way better at saying that. And then Buddhism. Um, I've been drawn to both of those at times, but I've stayed within the synagogue and, and sort of Judaism. I'm curious for you how you think about religion and how you think about spirituality um, and what your framework might be for that. I mean, I feel like both of the the, the I mean, Buddhism is, is a practice rather than religion, but still, <clears throat> um, both of the sort of life philosophies that I've mentioned come from this idea of what works for you, what makes you a good person, right? Unitarian Universalism isn't, isn't a religion. You can be an, uh, a Satanist or, or an atheist and, and be part of a Unitarian church. Um, and the same thing with, with Buddhism. They, they always make that joke that Buddhism doesn't have a holy book. It has a library. <clears throat> and so... Uh, when you're a boot, even Buddha himself said, don't believe me, go out and test for yourself, right? So um, any, any moral, I guess, theories or philosophies that I follow are, are ones that encourage me to think <laughs> critically. But also, you know, one of the things that I love about the Jewish tradition is it's so, it gives space for emotion. Um, the Jewish tradition, like Shiva is a perfect example of just allowing space for grief and yeah there's ritualistic you know parts of it but for the most part it's just like feel your grief <laughs> feel it as you're gonna feel it and and maybe you know you know when you're at a shiva and sometimes it'll just be people sitting in silence and then all of a sudden someone will burst into tears right and it's not, you know, there's no blame. People will comfort that person. They, they just allow them to cry. Nobody says, oh, it's fine. They're in a better place. I've never heard anything like that at a Shiva. Um, it's just like, yeah, you're gonna, you're gonna feel this and whatever it is that you're feeling, it's okay. And, and that's sort of the way I feel about, you know, I, I kind of sometimes feel like my books are sort of anti self-improvement because I'm basically saying you're okay. <laughs> you're actually fine. I just want to get you, I want you to strip away all of this other stuff, this other veneer, and let's get back to who you are. Let me, let me help you kind of 
take off all the wax coatings and and find find out who you are and what is it you need who are you how are you doing what do you need when you say you're okay i'm also thinking about you talking to yourself in that way like i'm i'm okay what do i need and when i read do nothing i especially thought like this is a book for celeste like <laughs> she is saying i'm tired i'm exhausted I need to do nothing. Whereas maybe someone else is reading this and being like, no, right now I need to go. Like I need, I need to be ambitious. I texted someone earlier uh, who's familiar with your work. And I said, what do you think? They're like, that's probably not the right chapter for my life right now. Um, which is commendable. I think, yeah. like you said, it's for each of us to figure out where are we? And I tried to do some math on this, but you were about 50 years old when you're, when you published do nothing, sorry, but it, the internet gives us these, this information. <laughs> I love being 50. Are you kidding me? Right. Yeah, go ahead. So I thought about it as like, man, when I was reading do nothing, it was like, is there, is this sort of a midlife crisis about where am I? What do I actually want to be doing? How do I want to show up for the next 50 years? Uh, whereas when I read speaking of race, that felt like almost a life's work for you. Um, where this is my experience. This is my grandfather. This is what I've heard. This is what I've been able to hear because people might think that I'm white and I'm not. <laughs> and so um, I was so interested about these two books because they came out so close together where Do Nothing felt like a chapter and Speaking of Race felt like years, not years, a life's work. I'm just curious for you to riff on the dichotomy between the two or the differences between the two books. And I'm not devaluing either of them, but when I read, you know, speaking of race, it felt like this is my life here. Whereas do nothing is like, this is where I'm at right now. And I'm making changes so that I don't continue on this path. Yeah. I, I, uh, that's pretty perceptive. I mean, speaking of race is the best thing I've ever written and the most difficult. <clears throat> I mean, writing that book absolutely wrecked me. Um, and oddly enough, after I learned all those good practices and do nothing, which is sort do nothing is like a treatise. It's like we need a revolution, right? Um, and it, for me, it was less a midlife crisis as it was. I was finally able to get to the point where I could I, I had the time to ask what is going on? Like, how did we get here? Um, that's not something you're able to do when you're building a career and building credibility in age 20 and 30 and even into your 40s. And I, I mean, I was writing it in my 40s. So that was at the point in my life where I finally at least had enough um, credibility to ask the bigger questions, um, to really say, wait a second, I don't believe what you're telling me. <laughs> and so that was sort of what do nothing was, was let's let's pull the curtain back and see the guy manning the controls. Speaking of race was the book I really did not want to write. <laughs> um, and it came out so quickly after Do Nothing because that's when George Floyd was murdered. And that's when uh, we had some of the largest protests in the history of the world. Um, and that's when my publisher said, hey, I know you just published a book, but you want to write another one. And my, actually my first answer was no, <laughs> no, thank you. Um, and then I thought, you know, what kind of tribute is that to my ancestors and all they sacrificed if I were to say, no, thank you. I just finished a book, I'm tired. Um, so speaking of race was kind of ripped out of me um, to a certain extent. And, and in many cases it was quite 
raw. Uh, there are stories in there I've never told before, period. Like not never told to anyone, but my closest friend, like just never told. Um, so, and, and maybe it's like, if I think about, you know, that my three, um, you know, mass market publications going from, we need to talk to do nothing. And speaking of race, maybe it's that I'm becoming more emphatic. Maybe I feel sometimes a little bit like Cassandra, um, screaming behind the walls of Troy. And I, I'm just like, listen to me, <laughs> listen. Um, it could be a, some measure of all three of those things. As you were just talking about speaking of race, I could feel your emotion. And you said it was a hard book for me to write. What did it even feel like as you were just reflecting for the past minute and a half or so? I mean, you just feel that visceral. I mean, it's more than fatigue. It's just a weariness, like an almost existential weariness. Um, because speaking of race is the product of not only my not just my own experience, but the experience of my parents and my grandparents and my great grandparents before them. Right. I'm trying to speak for them as well. Um, and it's it's you know, you just all you can do is hope while you're writing a book like that, hope that it's worth it. <laughs> That's all you can do. You know, that's you release it into the world and you have no control over how it's received. Um, and it uh, it was, a, you know, it I had to write it quickly, which meant that had to be my full time job. Um, and by the time I got done, I, I had it took me like two weeks just to physically recover. Like I had to cancel everything. I just was wrecked. Um, so, yeah, that was a that was tough. I'm glad I did it. But whew, I don't think I'd do that again. <laughs> it's interesting. Uh you talk about always being seen as someone who is driven and as ambitious. And it's the order of these books are kind of fascinating because I have authors on the podcast all the time say, Oh, it was a trilogy. I was planning to do this and then that, and then that it doesn't seem like that was the plan here. And so it's interesting because a lot of what you talk about and do nothing, it sounds as though you jumped right back into it. Um, for the sake of your ancestors and for the sake of the cause and the need to get it out there. So it is a question that I think all of us are asking, or at least I'm asking myself is when is the juice worth the squeeze? And it sounds like for you, this had to happen. We're having a podcast conversation about it. We're going to get into race, um, which is why I thought it was important to locate, Hey, where are you? Um, and I'm going to share something about me and sort of my journey. So I have a company where we do coaching and facil facilitating and a bunch of years ago, we got together a bunch of coaches and facilitators and we said, Hey, what are the competencies that are necessary for people to thrive in the workplace? And we came up with stuff like communication and emotional intelligence and leadership and teamwork and so on and so forth. And one of the ones we landed on was called bias and belonging. And this was before DEI and um, all that stuff became really a phrase or a term. And you address that in the book as well, beautifully. And so when George Floyd hit, we had leaders that we were doing facilitations for all of a sudden say, hey, what do you do with DEI? And for those that have never met me, I'm a white, you know, heterosexual male, like. Cisgender, I assume. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I, they call me to lead something on what we call bias and belonging. I'm not doing that by myself. Um, I don't think it's right for the company. I don't think it's right for myself. Um, but one of my colleagues is a woman named Grace, and she's an African-American woman. 
And so Grace and I co-facilitated a lot of bias and belonging conversations. And we're, we're not experts. We don't claim to be experts, but we hold space and create dialogues and create um, opportunities and containers for people to have difficult conversations. And one time after it, I said to Grace, I said, Grace, I don't know how much I want to do this. Like it is exhausting work. And she looked at me and she said, Brian, being a person of color in a racist society, it's exhausting every single day. Welcome to my world as a black woman. Like I deal with this every single day. And I mean, I, the word privilege gets thrown around and people have a unique relationship with it. But right then and there, I was like, holy shit, like Brian, you can't do this for an hour or two. Um, so as I tell that story, I see you nodding your head. I'm curious what's going on inside your head as, as you nod. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yes, to all of that. I actually started a, a nonprofit over the past year that focuses on DEI interventions and training for media. Um, so we train the trainers, like we train people to be DEIB facilitators. Um, and I warn everyone before they start this week of training to be a certified facilitator, I'm like, do not schedule any other meetings like this this will overwhelm you. <laughs> I'm not kidding. They never believe me. <laughs> they are like, oh, we get an hour and a half for lunch. I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this. They never believe me. But I, I, I don't know how much more firmly I can say it to people is like, this will wipe you out. Um, and that's okay. That is okay. Just understand that, that this work is, 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 is going to ask a lot of you. You know, interestingly enough, the other thing I was not, I, that made me nod my head is like, we need white guys to be leading these conversations. Um, and this is one of the things I tried to lay out in speaking of race is why I don't want any white men speaking for me. Um, I don't want a white guy saying, hey, don't say that because what would you say that if black people are present? I need white guys going, don't say that because that bothers me. That's what we need. And so recruiting more heterosexual, cisgendered white dudes to do this kind of work is absolutely important and crucial. Um, but yeah, it's it's not easy. Well, it's it, it was interesting the way I was feeling about it, because I was like, this isn't this isn't what I should be paid to do. I felt and maybe that's a way to do it is in a nonprofit setting, but still in a non you still can get paid in a nonprofit setting. So there was um, friction for me. And for me, one of the big reminders was that the audience that we were speaking to often looked like me. And so I realized that I could play a significant role in the conversation because people look like me and they needed to hear from me and yeah. my perspective. And then I also could screw up. Like I, I could share my own racist thoughts or beliefs or, or tendencies or biases. Um, like even at one point, you know, I used the word aggressive to describe a woman and, and we talked about it and I was like, Oh, Whoa. Or um, my own in between sessions, my own stereotypes that would, that would pop up. And so it is an interesting thing as we all, we all have to think about how, and this was one of your big takeaways is that we all should be doing this work in, in some capacity um, because it matters if you care about yeah. humans, like part of our world involves race. Um, I want to go back to you because I've now been talking about myself for too long. Um, Jewish and black and, and that intersection is a really interesting intersection. Um, you know, in some ways, 
there are shared legacies, civil rights movement involved a lot of blacks and Jews arm in arm. Uh, in other ways, though, there we live in the same cities and we're often segregated. We sort of you hear tropes on both sides that are not good and not ideal. Um, so I'm curious to get your lens as a Jewish person who also identifies as black, um, how you think about that intersection and how you think about those relationships between those two groups. I mean, um, it is true that uh, of all the populations uh, throughout history, American history, at least, the, the, the group of people most likely to help African-Americans was the Jewish populate community. Um, you see it over and over that often it was the Jewish bankers who were willing to give out business loans, that it was um, uh, uh, Jewish contractors who were willing to work on, on black homes. You also see them moving out of neighborhoods as soon as black people moved in. And in my own family, when my grandmother married a, a black man, all everyone but her sister disowned her. Um, and this is the dichotomy of America, <laughs> right? This is it. Like we can be both full of high ideals and um, uh, admirable values, and yet vote with our feet and make the wrong decision over and over and over again. Um, you know, my grandfather and and my grandmother wrote the lyrics, but the, he wrote a cantata called "Wailing Woman." which is sung by a, a woman who is a Jewish woman, and she's talking about the, her affinity with a, a black man. And then it becomes, you realize that what she's talking about is the affinity between Jews and, and blacks and how they can both understand oppression in a way that others cannot. Um, and I think that's real. Uh, and I think that's true. And I think that that's no mistake that so many of the spirituals are based on the story of Moses and and based on you know the 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 torah um that the the same dreams of freedom um and human dignity that that inspired and and frankly led to resilient level of resilience <laughs> that you know is unbelievable among the jewish people is also what led to the dreams of the african-american people as well and and i feel like that bond is is real but at the same time it's not Mm, it's flawed, you know, being, you know, it's so, it's funny because one of the women I quote in the book is um, uh, a woman in our, my, the public radio sphere, Helen, who said, you know, I think among a lot of my, you know, other Jewish female friends, we feel like we can't be racist. We're Jews, <laughs> right? And she's like, and I'm realizing how wrong that is. And that I have to start asking myself some real tough questions. And those questions actually need to be we need all need to be asking them of ourselves. None of us are free of it. Um, yeah. And you mentioned in the book, even people that identify as a person of color and that they can be racist too, where there's, there are some people that would say, nope, you can't. And there are some complex dynamics at play as far as how we think about these things going forward. Um, you mentioned your grandfather though. I want to just shift gears a little bit. Um, he was, he was famous, right? And you talk about him in your TED Talk and talk about having, you know, people come in and out of your life and being around interesting people um, for a lot of your life. I'm curious how you think about fame. Interesting question. Um, fame is not protective. Uh, 
you know, my grandfather was famous and broke, <laughs> you know, fame um, can be a double-edged sword. You know, fame also means there's lots of people who feel like it's their right to comment on your choices and interfere. You know, he got hate mail and um, he drew attention to himself in a way, I, you know, I don't, I, I don't, you know, I don't think of myself as famous, so I'm not entirely sure what fame feels like. But I know that for my grandfather, it was confusing to him that he could be so well known, like in our in our living room in my grandparents house, they had an entire like large cabinet, maybe, I don't know, maybe like four, four and a half feet wide, and easily six feet tall, that was just full of awards, <laughs> just full of keys to city, plaques, statues, all the awards he's won, and yet he couldn't get orchestras to play his music. You know, at some point the doors shut for a black composer in the United States. And so here on one hand, you're in very famous, you know, Los Angeles set aside William Grant Stillday under Mayor Tom Bradley. And on the other hand, um, you're, he was writing little ditties for elementary school textbooks in order to make a living. So, you know, fame is, um, I don't know. I, it, fame doesn't seem to me like to be something I, I would ever strive for. I suppose it just happens to some people, um, but I, I can't imagine wanting it. It always confuses me when people are like, I wanna be famous. Why? <laughs> like, for what reason? What does that get you? You know, like money I get. Money, you can do stuff with money, but fame? Yeah, I've been around famous people. I don't envy fame. Like, mm -hmm. I don't think I'd much rather be wealthy and anonymous. Than, Absolutely. Like, I, I just think that there's more, way more downside. And we hear it from people that are famous all the time, whether it's actors or athletes or musicians. And speaking of musicians, for you in your journey, music played a big role. It's what you studied. It, you still are opera singer and, and music, big part of your life. Was there ever any connection between the drive that you had to excel in music and what doors it might open up or who you might meet or how music might play a role in your identity and in your life? I mean, I think that uh, music, if nothing else, um, made me a better broadcast journalist because I just have an ear for audio landscapes and sound. But also I think that in terms of my writing um so much especially opera singing which you know some people call controlled screaming right to to per, to be a singer um you have to learn how to let your body respond at every moment to the emotion you're feeling so you're thinking through the lyrics and you have to let your body respond in an authentic way to those lyrics to that thought and that sentiment um because I, you don't ever want to, to sing the words i love you and think to yourself okay what does it look like when you love somebody and then i'm going to put that face on no you want to let the feeling of love pass through your body and allow your body to express it without you getting in the way your mind getting in the way and so i think that to a certain extent um studying music and especially singing allowed me to embrace my own authenticity right it allowed me to sort of let my emotions be what they were going to be um and uh that has helped me i think as an as an author um 
in terms of connections, I don't know. I, for me, music was never really about making connections. You know, when I auditioned for the master's program at Mich Michigan, I didn't tell them who my grandfather was because I didn't want to get in because I was Wayne Grant Still's granddaughter, right? Um, and so I, I never wanted to, I, I, I always wanted to stand on my own two feet and I was either gonna be good enough to make it or I wasn't. Um, but the thing that I, I lo always loved about music is what my grandfather always said, which is that music has the power to transcend our thoughts. It has the power to touch us on a visceral level um, which can be disarming and it can be pure empathy when you hear really effective music. So I think that's what always drew me. Singing, writing, speaking, interviewing, a lot of things that we can add INGs to. Is there one of those that you feel most alive? No, I feel very alive doing all of them. And I think for me, speaking and singing are essentially the same thing. I'm still reaching out to people um, through the power of my voice um, and the, my and my body and my expressions. Um, so no, that makes me feel like I've no, I just don't believe in doing stuff if you're gonna half-ass it. Like if I if I don't if I'm not into it and I, I don't want to give it my full everything, then I'll do a crossword. <laughs> why why, you know why do it with less than all all of my life force um yeah so i, I throw myself into it if i'm going to do it i'm going to do it 100 percent. i think you said in your ted talk everyone's an expert at something do one of those areas come harder to you you said speaking and singing are kind of the same for you writing, interviewing, do one of those require more energy or more skill development or more um, patience? Like if you think about those different expertise that you have, how do you, how do you think about expertise as it relates to those? Yeah. Interviewing is, is difficult and it's a craft and it's not something that you, um, it's a, it's a, it's a craft and a discipline that you have to keep up. Um, and it's one of the reasons I still do guest hosting for NPR because if you stop interviewing, you will lose that. Your skills will will dull. Um, writing is hard. <laughs> writing is difficult for me, um, and so that's effortful. Um, I mean, I I have nothing but admiration for people who write easily. I don't know if that person exists, but if they do, awesome for you. Um, it is not easy for me. It is it is difficult and it's exacting and it's sometimes very frustrating. And um, so, I mean, public speaking is probably the easiest. Um, and then after that, it would be singing and then interviewing and then writing. Would you like if you could plan, you know, you had an interesting line in, in, uh, in Do Nothing where you said, you know, if, if you had 25, if you inherited $25 million, you know, you'd probably watch Netflix or movies and, and garden all day. If you had $25 million, what would you, what would you do with your day? What would I do? I've thought about this a lot. Um, not that it's ever going to happen, but um, I would, A, I would be, I mean, 
I already am the party thrower. Like, I don't know if every neighborhood has like the person who go- is super extra as a party thrower, but that's already me. You're so looking I- at another one. So we, <laughs> yeah. can, we can meet halfway. And, I'm and throw all a party. Of, I am so <laughs> extra. I am so extra. Um, so I would throw even more parties. Um, I would have the most fantastic vegetable and herb garden ever in the entire world. Um, I would probably have more pets. <laughs> And um, I would be, you know, seeing all my friends and flying and and crafting trips with all my friends pretty much all the time. And I would read, I would finally catch up with all my reading. But I didn't hear you say I'd write, I'd speak, I'd interview, or I'd sing. Yeah, I wouldn't. So so why are you, so why are you, why are you doing those four things? Um, Because I feel like I still, I can add something you know there's a principle in the eightfold noble path in buddhism and one of them is right work and essentially it it means that if you're if you need to do work in the world it needs to do something that makes that is at least carbon neutral but hopefully that makes the world at least a tiny bit better um and that is has been the driving even before i was a buddhist that's been a driving force in my life is like i'm not going to do anything that causes harm um and i and it was kind of the same thing that i decided when i chose to write speaking of race is like one of my initial hesitations was like you know what what the heck do i have to say about this that other people haven't already said and then i i realized that these conversations were going so badly and like even well-intentioned white people were just mucking it up and and black people were mad justifiably so and just out of patience with the conversation, I thought to myself, okay, this, this I can help with. (laughs) I can help with this narrow part. And I keep finding that every day. Okay, so here's, here's this one thing I can actually help with. It was sort of the inspiration for the original TED talk too, because their prompt to me was think about something that's going wrong in the world and then tell us how to fix it. And I was like, well, I, I don't, you know, there's not a, you know, I'm not gonna be designing some new heart replacement or whatever, but conversation I know how to make that better (laughs) so I'll do this one thing um and that's what keeps me coming back to my work is I can still contribute I mean I still have things I can say and do to make things even a tiny bit better and when that's not true anymore okay I'll be done and I can relax with my my herbs and my dog what do you get from the contributions that you make I mean, there's nothing better in the world than to feel like you've been useful. You know, I mean, I don't know that there's a better feeling out there. I mean, other than love, but that's so, that's out of your control. But like to, to, when someone comes back to you and says, you know, you, you helped me in my life. Like you made my life better. I mean, that's the best thing anybody could ever say. Um, and I, 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 you know, I hear it a lot. I get, to, I get, here's my privilege. I get to hear that all the time. I could never say that I, I'm not appreciated because I am so appreciated. People write out, write to me. They, they reach out to me. I'll do speeches and people will get uh, emotional. Like they'll start crying. Um, I mean, I, I don't know. How do you get better than that? That's, that's the top. That's, that's it. Yeah. That was for me when I was reading do nothing, it was like, I'm around people that have $25 million in the bank. Like I, I, 
absolutely know them. I coach some, like they got money <laughs> and they can do whatever the heck they want. And I think there's a difference between just staying on the treadmill for external reasons and, and perhaps for, you know, another car, another house or another external reward versus feeling like you can make an impact. My dad, very successful business person. And he said to me, Brian, those that say money can't buy happiness are spending their money the wrong way. And the thinking behind that is you can spend that money to give back to charities and be philanthropic and you can spend that money in a really meaningful, meaningful way. And so fulfillment for me, like I'm down to be in the garden with you and, and watch Netflix and we can throw a big old party. Um, and like when I'm around those people that are just doing that, I find that they're often yearning to have fulfillment in some other capacity, which is, I think one of the reasons why rich people aren't always happy is because they don't have a sense of fulfillment in what they're doing. I got to tell you this story. So a, a few years, some years back, um, this is when I was still on Facebook. So it had to have been like 2017 or 2018. Um, one of my friends, uh, posted on her page that her little girl her daughter was like doing lemonade stands and all this other stuff because she wanted to earn enough money to be able to see hamilton that was the traveling show was coming to detroit and like she just wanted to earn enough money and um you know i'm a very successful public speaker and i've been broke most of my life and i suddenly have money right like i make 32 five thirty five thousand dollars for a keynote when it's in person right so I wrote to my friend and I said, let me buy her a ticket to Hamilton in New York. Let me, let me do this for her. I can do it. Please let me do this. And she said, okay. So I bought two tickets um, at the Richard Rogers theater. And I said, all I want is I want a picture of her in the audience. And I get this picture of this little girl holding, clutching her program. I mean, just her face. I mean, and I thought to myself, my God, if I were rich, I could feel like this all the time. <laughs> like I could do this for people all the time. Like, how could you not do that? Who wants a yacht like this? This is it, man. Like this picture of this girl clutching her Hamilton program. I mean, I mean, seriously, I'm not, I'm being absolutely honest with you. That is like one of the best feelings I've ever had in my life. And, and yeah, money can bring you that it can absolutely be transformative um, when you use it to bring joy. I mean. And you got me like paused, which is great. Uh, <laughs> one of the things that was really startling in your book was how flawed people are. And you were talking to these experts of race and they study it and they live it and they're embedded in it. And I was thinking, I minored in African-American studies having grown up near where we are today. So I grew up in Potomac, Maryland, affluent suburbs. Even in our area, you still have diversity, but um, you know, it was plenty of Jews and Asians and you know, there were African-Americans. It was diverse, but kind of segregated as well um, by who your people were. So when I went off to college, I went to a private university. And once again, easily can segregate, find your people and, and go your separate ways. But I love the African-American studies classes because I was actually different in those classes. And I felt like I would raise my hand and then I'd be like, yeah, maybe this isn't the right thing to say. And so feeling that at least for an hour or so, I thought was really healthy for me. 
But one of the things I found fascinating about your book was these people live this stuff, breathe this stuff, read about it. They know everything about it. And they're giving you all these amazing tools to go implement. And then they say, I'm on a WhatsApp group with my family and I'm losing my shit and I don't know how to communicate with them. Or I'm at a family holiday and I have no idea how to have difficult conversations about politics or race or whatever else we're not supposed to talk about that we end up talking about. So what do you think the reason is that we can use these tools when we're strangers and have some emotional control or regulation. And then when we're with people that we feel comfortable with or that we're supposed to love, we struggle. Any conversation about race and identity is emotional. It's not factual. I mean, race doesn't even exist. So if you're having a conversation about race, it's entirely emotional. That's what gets me when, like if, if race comes up in the classroom or, or in the workplace and that people say like, it's getting emotional in here, let's, let's save this for another time. I'm like, no, because of course it's gonna get, the emotion is part of the, the facts of the experience, right? That's like saying, you know, you're being disrespectful to me. Um, that's not true, that's just emotional. Yeah, it's emotion, but it's also reality right race is real because racism is real so of course you're going to get emotional but also there's this this feeling of betrayal right like these are your people these are the people that are closest to you that know you well that that look similar to you and have similar experiences and and have some of the same memories as to you and how can they think this way how can they be like this <laughs> right that's so hard when it's your own family um I mean, I want everyone to keep going in there, keep suiting up, even if it's only five minutes at a time, but it's hard. It, there's, there's this element of betrayal that doesn't exist when it's a stranger or a coworker. We had Sian Bylock, who wrote a great book called Choke and president of Barnard University on the podcast. And she said, at Barnard, they try to create brave spaces instead of safe spaces. And the thinking there is that, no, it's going to be uncomfortable in our yeah. classrooms and we need to have difficult conversations. As I reflected on that, I was thinking, yeah, well, what, what if we had both, right? Like, how do we create psychological safety and then have a container where people can be courageous and brave? Because um, I think both are, are necessary and needed. And back to the family aspect, for me, I, like, I, I legitimately hold space for people. Like, that is my job as a coach. And I'm curious and I, I ask questions and then I get with my brothers or I'm like, and then we're arguing and debating about who the quarterback of the football team should be. Right. And it, it's, there's just something, like you said, with strangers, I, I don't, maybe we let go of the, the judgment in a way. I, can you go a little deeper into maybe what that is that exists when we're with strangers that not always, but sometimes like your book is a lot of grace for strangers. There is stories about buying a Starbucks coffee for someone who was saying things that are inappropriate or being on the train, or you had so many examples where you were able to extend grace to a stranger. I'm trying to figure out, well, I'm kind of similar. Like I can extend grace to someone I've never met before, but my closest people, I, I like expect more from them or there, there's something there that that I want to get better at. So I want you to teach me. So I'll, I'll tell you a couple things. Um, the first one is that one of the ways that I have patience for strangers is imagining that they were one of my relatives. <laughs> so it like, flips for you. It actually right. flips. I'll be like, like if I'm behind someone in the car and they do something stupid, I'll be like, oh God, if that were my sister, I'd be like, yeah, she's a bad driver. <laughs> you know, uh, 
you know, and so that helps me have patience for the stranger, um, because we do we actually tend to we give the people that we know the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. And maybe it's laughter. You even laughed. You're like, Oh, she's a bad driver. We can yeah. laugh with family. Exactly. Like we can let it go. We can so let I, stuff go. I can and do that. But I struggle with like, when I disagree with them vehemently, I don't let it go. Well, I don't want you to let it go. <laughs> I don't want you to let it go. And the reason I say that is because the person who is most most effective at changing somebody's mind is somebody that they know very well and who is similar to them. And that's you, right? It's going to be frustrating. It's going to be frustrating because you're like, how can you be like this? Like, you know me, we know each other. We have the same memories. Like, how can we both have seen the same things and come to a different conclusion? Like you're supposed to be part of my tribe. And that's upsetting when you're like, whoa, you, you're not part of my tribe, um, but you have the most power to change their mind. And, and when you give up that fight, um, you're just setting them loose to go out into the world and probably victimize, you know, people of color or women or whatever with their biased beliefs. So I don't want you to give up the fight. I want you to keep going back. Yeah. And to be clear, my brothers, I, I'm not referencing on that. We talk about stupid stuff that we're disagreeing about, but the heavy stuff is what you're talking about. And there are certainly friends where I have to make decisions around. Do I just mute myself? Like I've heard anti-Semitic stuff. I've heard racist stuff. I mean, if you just open your ears, you're going to hear some stuff. And it is a question like, when do you interject? And I think one of the things I liked about your book was how to interject. Like, and I think that was the beauty of the book was, hey, you know, I know you said it's not a self-help book, but there are very specific, hey, this is a way in which you can engage someone. You can be very curious. You can ask them questions. You can share your experience. Um, and so that I thought was was also really helpful. Any other tools you would give to people as far as how they're going to engage in difficult conversations with people that they know? Um, you know, some of this comes from being brought up in a, a household with Jews. So my godparents were both Holocaust survivors um, and they met on Cyprus and got married in Israel. And um, they were part of the never forget <laughs> movement, right? They would talk about the Holocaust all the time. They would talk about what it was like before in Poland and in Germany before the Holocaust, what happened, the way people were, because as far as they were concerned, you couldn't be silent about it because if you're silent and you forget, it'll happen again, right? And that was drilled so deeply into me that I feel the same way about our conversations about any kind of race or difference is like, yeah, it's gonna be uncomfortable. It's not pleasant to talk about these things, but you have to, or we forget. And that leads us to do horrible things as human beings. I mean, that's the main thing is when people say stuff like, oh, he's inhuman, or this is not who we are. It is all too human and it absolutely is who we are. And we have to be on watch for it all the time. And we have to build a, a support network to, to save us from the, from, from the, the worst of our inclinations. We have to have people watching out for us. We have to make this a group activity 
because we can't do it on our own. We have, all of us have too many unconscious biases lurking underneath that leak out of us that are ready to make our decisions for us. And so we need a, a posse. We need a group of people and that needs to be the people around you. And so you need to understand each other. You need to talk about it. You need to find the limits of your bias and your compassion and just make it an absolutely open discussion. It's interesting. You had an amazing quote in the book where you said, the smarter we are, the worse our conversation skills are. And I think about the workplace, which you brought up in your book as well. And as Grace and I, who I mentioned earlier, do some of this work around bias and belonging, we are always trying to bring different ideologies into the conversation. And what we found is that those who believe that we shouldn't be doing bias and belonging or even talking about this at all in the workplace, they're not willing to speak up. Um, and so we were probably pretty naive when we first started and hoping to bring everyone's perspectives. But what we'd often hear behind the scenes was I can't say that I will lose my job and I can't do X, Y, and Z uh, or else I'll get canceled or, or whatever the phrase is that they want to use. As you train trainers, as you mentioned earlier, how do you help them bring out the voices that might be somewhat racist or the ideas that might be offensive? How do you bring those into the workplace given that many people feel as though they might lose something by saying something wrong. There's a couple things. I mean, I was I I wanted to make sure I included in the book that interview with the ethicist, somebody who studies the ethics of conversation, because I don't think we think about that very much uh, anymore. Um, and so in terms of saying the wrong thing, it all comes down to just simple ethics. Right. I mean, we know how to do that. You know what you would and would not say to your elderly aunt. And so you know how to be respectful and kind and ethical in your conversation. You know how to do it. It's not as difficult as you're making it sound. That's the first thing. The second thing I would say is that every organization, and it doesn't matter if it's a, an eight-member PTA or a large corporation, you have to create a culture of correction, meaning you're creating an environment in which it's expected that people are going to screw up. And so therefore you train in how to respond when someone says the wrong thing or does the wrong thing. You train like you run the role plays, you run the exercises, knowing someone's going to screw up and it might be you. And so um, what is acceptable and respectful as a way to point out someone's mistake and what is respectful uh, as a way to respond to that. It, it essentially that's about how do you take feedback? How do you give feedback? How do you take feedback? Um, and in a culture of correction, mistakes are not exceptional, they're expected. Mm -hmm. And it, it changes the atmosphere. It, you know, it also means that if you say, I mean, the, va the vast majority of people, the racism they're going to come in contact with is casual racism. It's not not damaging. It's just what we call casual racism, which is generally microaggressions. Very few people have to deal with overt or hostile sexism or racism or anti-Semitism. It's it's very rare. So you just have to learn these techniques for learning for dealing with the guy who says, "Oh, there's more coffee." Carol, get the, can you make more coffee? Or um, um, Rachel, weren't you the one that was supposed to uh, organize the office party? Or wow, a big tall black man, I bet you're great at basketball or whatever it may be. That's most of what you're dealing with, and so we're going to expect that someone is going to say something like that, and then how do we respond to it? 
Let's walk through it. Let's let's take all the mystery out of it and just walk through it. Here's some phrases to use. Here's how to say it. And and then you create it becomes it becomes more normal and it's not something to be ashamed of anymore. All right. We've been riffing for a while. We could keep riffing. I'm going to bring up one piece just cuz I feel like I have to and then and then we'll start to wrap. So I think you talk about the seed of dissent and how we go about doing that. And in preparation for this conversation, I listened to your conversation with Joe Ferraro, who has a great podcast called 1% Better. And you all talked about cancel culture. Yeah. And, you know, you basically were like, I don't really think it's a thing. Um, you know, I, I, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I don't really think it's a thing. And so I, I sort of started thinking about that. I'm like, well, who, who do I think of when I think of cancel culture? And honestly, the first person that came up was Colin Kaepernick. Um, and the fact that, you know, he took a knee and spoke out and then, um, you know, it's obviously a complex human, but I think that culture uh, and those owners weren't necessarily ready for that. And they had constituents, fans and people that did not like what Colin Kaepernick was doing. I thought of Rachel Nichols, who, um, for ESPN. And I thought about even Cuomo and, and what he's done and, and been suspended for what's going on with his brother. So I thought about examples. Um, but I'm curious, like to get your view on, on cancel culture, because from my lens, I do think it's a thing. And I do think our media, um, there's some challenges there as far as how we how we deal with people. And I think even beyond famous people, I do think in in organizations, um, this is something that they're dealing with and are challenged by, but I'm curious to get your, your views on it. Yeah, I don't think it is a thing. I think, um, all of the, all of the people that you've mentioned, um, they weren't canceled. Uh, they just had, um, uh, uh, they either lost their job or, or their profession was altered. Um, either for justifiable reasons, as in Chris Cuomo's case, or not justifiable reason, as in Colin Kaepernick's uh, situation. Um, Colin Kaepernick absolutely desired to be a Super Bowl winning quarterback in the NFL. Um, that business chose not to, they chose to let him go. Um, and instead, he's now a multimillionaire being the executive producer of movies and one of the the, the biggest uh, income generators for Nike. <laughs> you know, he wasn't canceled. He lost his job unfairly and unjustly. Um, I've lost my job unfairly and unjustly before. I wasn't canceled. Um, the idea of canceling someone is 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 sort of as it's known in our culture is this sort of the same as sort of like saying you are beyond the pale. People should have nothing to do with this person. You are a pariah, right? The idea of canceling someone is like exiling them to the borders of society. That didn't happen to Colin Kaepernick. It didn't happen to Chris Cuomo. He lost his job because he deserved to lose his job. Um, and it, it hasn't happened. You know, one of the things that people who uh, speak out the most about cancel culture, one of the people they Im immediately talk about is Louis C.K., right? He was canceled. No. He did a terrible thing. He admitted to it, but admitting to it doesn't, you know, you, <laughs> it doesn't take away the terrible thing that you did. And not only that, he just got nominated for a Grammy. Like Louis CK is doing fine. 
he's not been exiled or or you know moved to the borders of society he's still living a perfectly great life so yeah i don't think cancel culture is really a thing all we're doing is talking about people making choices and and either hurting people or rewarding people based on good reasons or bad reasons that's all that that's all that is um the fact that it becomes a more open conversation um is because of social media but the social media hasn't really had the power to make those decisions yet. Yeah, I think about Kaepernick just because you're right. He, he's he's going to go on and have all kinds of opportunities financially, but to have like something that is your craft get taken away to your, to use your word unjustly. What is that? Like, what can we call that? Cause I think that to your point, you said it happened to you. Like what, what is that where maybe it's social media or maybe it's, fans or maybe it's um you know other constituents that if they are loud then you can lose the thing that you want to do how would you phrase that i mean look betty white's show got canceled because she kept insisting on hiring black artists um it, it has happened to me and my my colleagues black women in media all the time canceled we lost our job for unjust reasons mm-hmm. that's what that is and it's happened since time immemorial and it will continue to happen and we as a society understand this is almost like the culture of correction let's go back to that we know this has happened it's happened for as long as human records exist we know it will continue to happen and therefore we as a society have to be on our watch and be prepared to support the people who lose their jobs and lose their profession unjustly so that they can find another way. Like it is awful that Colin Kaepernick doesn't get to thing to do the thing he dreamed of doing, but that's also true of a, a lot of people, mm. you know, a lot. So here's where I'd love to end with you um, is your son. So in the acknowledgement section, it's interesting. Like I wrote a book and I loved writing the acknowledge- acknowledgement <laughs> section. You mentioned earlier, writing is hard. Yeah. I mean, I had a lot of pain. You mentioned exacting the writing is, it's never ending. It, it, it's just painful. But the acknowledgement section, I loved writing that. That was super Agreed. fun. I think there's a, if you talk to most authors, they'll say the same, that they, no one ever reads the acknowledgements, but when you write <laughs> yeah. the acknowledgement, it's, that's really fun. And both of the last two books that I read of yours, you talk about your son at the end of the acknowledgement section. So, and you also talk about being a single mother. So, what has it been like for you to learn from your son and and talk about what it's like to be a mom? Yeah, I mean, I was a single mother of a single child, um, which is at, at at the same time one of the most challenging situations you can be in. And also, you know, it created a bond between us that is always going to be uniquely powerful. You know, I talk to him almost every day um, and he calls me a dork and a nerd. And you did you know, too, though, in the acknowledgement section. He is. I, I'm getting back at him because he doesn't get to <laughs> he doesn't get to reply. Um, so yeah, I mean, we have the that kind of relationship, but it, it, we have an extremely close relationship. Um, he and I have been through it together, um, and uh, I remember this one time on his eighth birthday when I was still reporting for NPR and the air, the uh, Northwest airline mechanics went on strike and I was like, buddy, pack up. I'm going to put a slice of your cake in the Tupperware and you're going to have to pack up your toys. We got to go sit out in front of the airport. 
And I remember talking to my friend Teresa that night and saying, oh my God, my poor son, like, this is awful. And she's like, this is the life he got. Like, this is the mom he got. And this is his, this is his lot in life. Like, this is the family he was born into for all the, the greatness and the horribleness that that entails. And, you know, you can't feel guilty about it. Like you are, you're doing what you have to do. And this is his burden. Like, you know, and I sort of see it that way. Like he, he has been through it with me and it hasn't always been easy by any stretch of the imagination, but, um, we have a, we have a, we have a great relationship and, you know, I couldn't love him more. I'm sure every par parent would say that about their kid, right? Like everyone's kid. I would never say I have the, my kid is the greatest person in the world. That's not true. And just like, I'm not the greatest person in the world. Um, I see all his flaws, but, uh, well, on balance, he's a, he's a pretty great person. What have you learned from him? Um, a few things. He, a long time ago, when I, when he was still in like elementary school, was the one always telling me that I didn't know how to relax. <laughs> uh, so that's the first thing is I have learned from him how to at least try to relax. Um, I also have, you know, one of the toughest things as a parent um, is to realize that uh, uh, to let go of stuff, <laughs> right? To realize, especially when you have a very close relationship with your kid, that there's only so much control you have. There's only so much that his good points are a reflection of my good parents and, and his bad parent points are a reflection of my bad parent. Like that only goes so far. And the rest of it, you have to let go of and let them make their choices and be who they're going to be. And that's a lesson that can serve you in almost every aspect of your life is learning how to let go. When I published Do Nothing, my publication gift that I gave to my agent and my editor was a, a sterling silver bracelet that said, let that shit go. Um, and I think parenting my son is what is, that's one of the things I learned from him. That is a beautiful place to end. Let that shit go. I love it. Um, Celeste, your website, obviously, is I know where you have a lot of information about the books, speaking, all that good stuff. Is there anywhere else you want to direct people? Um, I know social media, you're active on Twitter. Um, let us know where, where people can find you and, and your work. Yeah, Twitter, I'm very, I'm pretty active on. And the only other thing is my nonprofit, which is uh, my passion um, is headwaydei.org. It's a 501c3. <laughs> so they can also find what we do there. Perfect. I also know you're on LinkedIn because I messaged you uh, on LinkedIn. And I think that's how we got this conversation started. So Thanks to Ash for making it happen. I'll tell you, Celeste, I, I kept knocking on Ash's door to try to make this happen. So thank you, Ash, for, for letting us make this happen. I know you you take your time seriously and, and want to make sure you're not exhausted. And, you know, we started by putting up that the states of mind chart. And we, you said, oh, I'm probably at a, somewhere between a minus one and a one, maybe at the zero. Are you still there or have we? No, I think I'm solidly into one. Now we got, we got a yeah. plus one. Yeah. I think I'm, I'm, I'm there. Yeah. Perfect. If we'll people want what happens yeah. after I get off here and my yeah. energy drops, but I'm, I'm feeling pretty good. <laughs> well, I'll come by your house and throw a snowball and we'll see maybe we'll go <laughs> right back go. down below the line and, and back to maybe a minus two or maybe a minus three. Um, <laughs> Celeste has been a blast. I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson. LinkedIn is the other place I like to play Brian Levinson and people can listen to all these conversations at strongskills.co slash podcast. Celeste, have a great weekend. Thanks for all that you continue to do for the world. You are making an impact. You are, you should feel really fulfilled with the work that you've done. And 
um, you know, maybe at some point you'll just be in the garden, uh, growing stuff and, and we'll, we'll get you there. So whatever I need to do to help you get there, just let me know other than giving you, you know, $25 million to, to make it happen. So feel free to do that. I, I got you. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Appreciate you. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. Speaking of race was the book I really did not want to write. <laughs> um, and it came out so quickly after Do Nothing because that's when George Floyd was murdered. And that's when uh, we had some of the largest protests in the history of the world. Um, and that's when my publisher said, hey, I know you just published a book, but you want to write another one. And my, actually my first answer was no, <laughs> no thank you. Um, and then I thought, you know, what kind of tribute is that to my ancestors and all they sacrificed if I were to say, no thank you, I just finished a book, I'm tired. Um, so speaking of race was kind of ripped out of me um, to a certain extent and, and in many cases it was quite raw. Uh, there are stories in there I've never told before, period. Like not never told to anyone, but my closest friend, like just never told.